Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Book Club. First rule of Book Club is you must always talk about Book Club. Second rule of Book Club is tell everyone about Book Club. And welcome to IRC Book Club. I believe this, Michael, believe it or not, is episode number 91. Happy days. One thing we can't be accused of is a lack of sticking power, is it? Exactly. I'm so glad we've read some of the books that we've read. Are you? Yeah. You were, you were just saying as much as well, weren't you? I was, yes. About how inspiring the whole process has been. Okay, so today we're on parts three and part four of Inked by Jeb Blunt. This afternoon, actually, listeners, we will be interviewing Jeb for the show. Um, I guess in many respects as a sales author and thinker, he's a bit A-list, really. Well, so, no doubt about it, he definitely is. Yeah, you know, so Most he, people have heard of Fanatical Prospecting, I would say. Yeah, so he'll be joining us. So part three is entitled Sales Negotiation Strategy, Motivation, Leverage and Power. It's made up of multiple chapters, the first one being called ML Strategy, Motivation, Leverage and Power Strategy. What he's talking about here are motivation, leverage and power position as being the the chessboard of sales negotiation. And he has quite a nice, cute little graphic that kind of is there for graphic's sake, really. But it's a graphic, nonetheless, motivation. So what do you make of this one? overall feeling on the book is and i said it last week is that actually it's this book versus chris voss's book on negotiation this one is about selling chris voss's is about sort of negotiating without selling so what do i make of this chapter you know the chapter is titled motivation on page 66 he was talking about he's given an example of of his business sales gravy trying to win some business and it goes Weeks went by, but we were in no hurry. We had an overflowing pipeline along with multiple projects already underway. And I mean, you could summarize a lot of the book and the difference between this book and Voss's book in terms of Jeb looks at it like a sales guy. And whilst he never explicitly says it, what he sort of says lots of times are, have a big enough pipeline and you'll be all right. Yeah, I I wrote that in, you know, where you've just, that bit you've just alluded to, Mm. I wrote pipeline equals power. Exactly. So, so when he's talking about motivation, and then he's going to talk about leverage, and then he's going to talk about pipeline, the overall tenor is going to be, you know, have enough in your pipeline. But in this case, he's talking about motivation within the stakeholder community to get the thing done. Yeah. And then he talks about your relationship, their individual success criteria, and social proof. Now, what I thought was absolutely fascinating, and you did ask me uh, about this Jonathan I can't exactly remember where I've written it down he talks about social proof and the biggest um, thing about social proof I think in the in the modern era actually is LinkedIn that's a good social proofing model isn't it how many right. recommendations have you got on LinkedIn do you think anyone gives a shit about how many recommendations people have got on LinkedIn definitely 100% absolutely they yeah. do in your world Mike I don't think they do in the world of our audience well, I think you're wrong. Otherwise, why would it be in there? And why would people collect it? I think it's, is, a, it's a, a neat... I think, actually, it's a feature that you... I, I think you're on a wrong path here, Mike. I think this is a feature that works for you as a recruitment consultant, as a senior executive recruiter, that you've got that much social proof. But actually, I think if you are selling C-level, if you are selling complex, high-value deals... I think your LinkedIn testimonials, yes, they probably bring something to the party, but I wouldn't refer to them as ultimate social proof. Well, what would you then? Well, I think ultimate social proof is referenceability from real clients, actual referenceability of, I can take you to a reference visit. That's what's happening in our, in our candidates world is them, their ability to say to a client, okay, that client, that client, that client, and that client. That's the implementation there. That's the implementation there. And that's the implementation there. Tell you what, I'll put you on a plane. I'll take you to Spain tomorrow to see the client. Okay, well, we'll have to get somebody on then to see who's right. Um, 
But on the basis of LinkedIn recommendations, I did actually look and see how many recommendations Jeb's got. How many? 29. And therefore your point is? Therefore my point is, you know, he makes a lot of stuff in his book about social proof and all the rest of it, but he doesn't really seem to have very much of it. It's funny because I, I, I've, I've read these two, two sections this weekend, Mike, and I, I've sort of not really, I, I skirted over the points he made about social proof. I, I just thought, yeah, well, it's, you know, social proof, get a reference site demonstrate some referenceability but I, I didn't put as much store by what he was saying around social proof as i think you seem to have done here the the, the other bit that he talks about he talks about motivation being personal i do think that's a very useful point i think there's a lot of stuff in this book that you found perhaps a little bit tedious because it's it's obvious to you right okay what but you know it makes point here motivation is a personal thing um and I often say, you know, no matter how much any of us say, it, it's just business. Every deal is personal. And every piece of business we all do is personal. It's about personal victory, personal pride, personal money, personal self-perception. It's see, about, I don't agree with that, actually. But that's uh, because you're very good at separation. You're, and we talk about so this a lot. This book, you see this on the camera? Yes. But have you read it? Never. It's interesting. It's called The Chimp Paradox, for those who aren't, um, you know, watching. They're just listening. So, you know, it's been banded about a lot. It's an old book and blah, blah, blah. So I thought I'd actually read it. Yeah. So what the chimp paradox talks about is it says we've got two inner inner parts of our brain, the chimp and the human. And actually what this man, what's his name? Jeb Blunt. No, Professor Stephen Peters. Yep. What Professor Stephen Peters would say, he would say that your viewpoint depends on how strong your inner chimp is. So you just spoke then personally with a man with a strong inner chimp. No, I, would I spoke... Speak personally actually is a person that's reasonably educated who actually looked at so that you just said you hadn't read the book irrespective of the fact that i haven't read the book i know a lot about the difference between flight and fight and the amygdala and what you're saying is that my amygdala has overtaken what i've said there that's completely incorrect actually what i'm saying is that uh people and human beings and we're both making exactly the same point in many respects is that people and human beings are personal and he says this later on in the book, to be fair to Jeb, he talks about how the fight, the flight response, and how the amygdala takes over people's thinking when they're in the middle of a negotiation. So it's easy to say it's not personal, it's just business, but everything is personal because if when you're sat in front of a customer and you're negotiating, the difference between winning and losing that deal is money that matters to you personally. And therefore, there is an inner part, the amygdala, which Professor Stephen Peters, I'm 100% sure, will be alluding to as his chimp paradox, which he's using to simplify the basics of human neuropsychology. Um, what happens with every human being is there's an element of the subconscious and the amygdala taking over the process. So it does become personal because the id and the ego become part of the deal. Because actually winning, losing, it's all personal. That's why so often you see it eat people alive. And we say, well, it's not personal. It's not personal. I can just put it to one side. I can just put it to one side. It's just business. It's just business. It's not. And that's what makes negotiating difficult because of that moment, particularly you take, for example, some of our candidates that have got deals that they work on for two years. Some of the healthcare guys I deal with pricey, they work on deals for two years. You telling me shit doesn't get personal. But you're well, always knocking the healthcare guys now. Good they are at selling. Yeah, I am. But my point so is, maybe your point imagine is that, how personal. That it's getting too personal for them. Maybe that's your yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. You're letting that's it get absolutely personal. That's why they're bad at negotiating. That's absolutely the point. It's two years into a deal when they've lumped in hours upon hours upon hours. And in the NHS, you know what it's like, and we're all... We're all in love with the NHS at the moment, but let's get it right. The NHS, from a procurement perspective, they drag you into meeting upon meeting upon meeting, tender upon tender, document upon document. Some point, that shit gets personal. It's the difference between am I or am Often it defines people, doesn't it? And I think that's what Jeb's getting to, is the challenge often with negotiation is that shit gets personal. That's the point he's making. Okay, well, let's come to page 80 then. I feel a bit like a lawyer now from what you just said. Page 80, you must systematically ask for testimonials and LinkedIn recommendations. Fair enough. But he's only got 20-odd. He's got 21. And that's okay. the point I was making a moment ago. Yeah. 
Well, you said, well, he doesn't look for social proof and doesn't mention LinkedIn, but he actually does. Well, I skipped Reddit because it just didn't seem that interesting to me. Well, I mean, I have just agreed with you on that because <laughs> yeah. it did get a bit dull. Chapter 11, leverage. It's interesting leverage because this again come back, comes back to pipeline a little bit, I think, doesn't it? Can I go back to one point about this chapter? Chapter uh, 10, of course, yeah. yeah. I think most people who are smart enough know what the negotiation issues are going to be when the campaign begins. I would agree with that, yeah. I reckon the really top boys, if you've got a really, really successful salesman in here now, you know, like that guy you're dealing with with that client in America. He's a top guy. And if you said to him, right. Yeah, close on a million pounds last year. Yeah, if you said to him, this deal that you're working on now, what's going to happen in the, go in the negotiation with the client? I bet you he could say they're going to negotiate on the following things and those will be the problems. And this is what I'm doing about that now in the pipeline and in the campaign to ensure that I don't go through that nightmare when the negotiation takes place. I also agree. And then just to go back on the thing that we disagreed about, I think if you measured his heart rate... Yes, it doesn't scale. It would much. hardly flicker. And I don't think he would think it was emotional. I would think he would say it's business. I don't think it would flicker. I think emotion has this would stir and change somebody's state it wouldn't bother him it's just business he'd take it on the chin it's all fine i think he's more than that i think he's more he's mentally aware enough to know that it theoretically can get emotional well i think the smart ones know it's going to get emotional don't they it's not a surprise yeah the smart know ones know i think i know what's coming here and the smart ones know in their own mind that the smart ones are clever enough to listen to what's going on inside their own head which he does talk about later on in the book actually it does, he, yeah. He doesn't really get into it in any useful level. I agree. Yeah. So then we move on. What page are you on now? Because you've flown on here. Only, I'm only on the next page from where we were. Chapter 11, page, page 82. Chapter 11, leverage. It's so interesting. So this. top of page 82, he goes, at times, a party may perceive or know that they have so much power, they, they need not make any concessions or compromises and therefore become intractable. Do business on my terms or, or else. Yeah. I, I, I think the mistake a lot of salespeople make is they play their cards too quickly, too easily, and become too readable. And I do 100% agree with Jeb here on what he's saying. He says, leverage is a currency and must be treated as such. It has value and must be exchanged for value. I actually think this chapter is one of his best chapters in the book, actually talking about the leverage that you can have in negotiation on. And, and he lists some stuff here. Information, T's and C's, pricing, body, body, body. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. I think there's a point where he makes here about the more you give away, he said, that's the line, isn't it? It's a simple value exchange. If you give leverage away, you should receive something in return of equal or greater value. Exactly, yeah. And I wrote, I wonder how many salespeople work on that principle. I also wonder how many are commercially honest with their clients. So it's a bit more Chris Voss than it is a bit more Jeb Blunt. Sure, I'll do that, but you'll be the lowest priority client I have. You know, how many times do people say that? Tell you yeah, what, well, yeah, not you, many. Here's, here's the thing, Mr. Customer, that price might work for you, and it, we can kind of make it work, but the reality is we're going to have to cut some cloth here to make that deal work at that price. Now, there's going to be a lot of that happening now, right now. What, customers kicking the living daylights out of salespeople? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah, and the question is how many salespeople are going to go back to the customers and say, yeah, that's great, and you, you're going to cut a really good deal here, but the reality is we're going to have to cut some corners to deliver at that price. So which corners do you want me to cut? Yes. And I, and, I, and I wonder, often I think a lot of it with the negotiation is having the goal to just look at the customer and say, which bit do you want me to remove them? Yeah, not many people are going to do that. I don't think many people do. Um, page 88, I think, was very interesting, and it's my only takeaway from the book, actually. Really? It, yeah. You better goes, tell us about it then, Mike. Yeah, he goes, do not email proposals. Yeah, I like that. Never, never deliver a proposal via email or by any other means that keeps you from being in there to walk your buyer through it. Why? Because a proposal is a formal offer. It's a platform upon which you present your business case and ask for the sale. It's your opportunity to get an explicit decision into the deal or begin with the sales negotiation process. I imagine, I mean, I don't know it. I imagine 98% of salespeople email proposals to their clients. I do. Yeah, and I'm guilty of having done it before. Not guilty of having done it, Johnny. You do it. Everyone does it. Well, it's did you e the point he's making is did you email it with a commitment to discuss it through, or did you just email it? Blindly? He's not even saying that. He he's is. Say 
He's not. I think he's saying the way I read it was, right. Uh, I'm going to send you a proposal, uh, but we're going to go through it on Monday at four o'clock, and I'm not going to send it. We're going to go through it on Monday at four. What you're talking about is sending the proposal and then asking yeah, if yeah, we yeah. can talk the, at four. I get your distinction. What he's That's saying not what he's is, saying. So you want a proposal? Great. Here's what we'll do. I'll speak to you at four o'clock next week, and, and we'll, we'll do a presentation to you, and I'll talk through it with you then. Now I don't know how many how many people would would actually dare do that because I think a lot of the clients are going to hold people to ransom a little bit and go no 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 but that's about leverage though we'll isn't decide it? whether we're going to talk or not yeah i think 88 i think if you can get to that point i'm certainly going to try it i, th I think that'd be an interesting thing to do i think that me too and I, actually it's funny uh, i don't use the green highlighter on my ipad much but that got greened yeah i thought it's really that's literally best bit in the book yeah it, uh, i wrote next to it a very good kick at the arse for me in these tough times particularly with remote selling well we all do it yeah. Let's be, let's be 100% clear. I can't think of a situation in which I haven't done it. Yeah. Well, can you send me some terms and conditions? Yeah, all right. It's a proposal, isn't it? Yeah. So actually, you and I as recruiters, maybe what we should do is rewrite our terms and conditions into five PowerPoint slides that are incredibly clear and straight up uh, alongside a pitch for inward revenue. So the next time somebody says, can you send me some T's and C's, we'll say, here's what we'll do. I've got, I'll put a proposal together for you. It'll include some terms and conditions. And the way I want to talk it through with you is on, the, on a video call this time next week for 10 minutes. Well, I'm not going to do that. Right, well, you qualify out. You know you're exactly. already, in a, well, well, you're already know you're in a duck auction for price, don't you? Well, he goes on, actually, to page 89. He says, if you've been in sales for more than a month, the prospect has said these words to you in person or, or over the phone or via email. I'm too busy to beat now. We're interested. Just send me your proposal. Send me a price as we're always looking for a better deal. I'm gathering information from vendors. Yeah. We're going to make a decision this week. I mean, everybody gets that. Everyone's been there. But then he says on page 90, if you acquiesce to their request, you're giving away leverage for free and you become their puppet. I just thought 88, 89, 90, they're like the three bits of the book you should read. That's gold, really? isn't it? I think. Oh, I mean, really I've got. Good. I'm reading it bit by bit as we record the show, so I'm I'm not in a position to judge the rest of the book. But that was for me the golden bit. bit that I got out of the weekend. And then he he makes this point here, and I got a bit frustrated with the book uh, later on in these two sections because I felt like we were getting into, in reality, a light treatise of strategic selling. I absolutely agree. We got away from negotiating and into selling. Yeah, and we got. But I think uh, what Jeb will say is. Selling is part of negotiation, I think. Is Correct. What say. Correct. But Absolutely. And, you know, he talks here about uh, good negotiators are masters at gaining consensus on a timeline for engagement from stakeholders early in the sales process. Well, if you've ever read uh, strategic selling, you'll know that one of the key elements of strategic selling is getting the customer to buy into an agreed set of timescales and deliverables as part of the procurement process. Yep. So I was a bit like, oh, come on, mate. Uh, and I got a little frustrated at that part. But then the, one of the things I do like is he gives sort of a couple of little scripty bits here. Buyer, we're going to be making a decision this week, so we need to get your information fast. How soon can you send us your proposal? Seller, John, my competitors will be happy to just throw a proposal at you. It's easy for them. They've got a generic box and expect all their customers to fit into it. This is where we are different. At my company, we build the box around you. And I just thought, fair enough. Uh, and yeah, actually, yeah, absolutely. You know, they're, they're, they're good. That makes sense. When can we meet? How much time will this take? Is there any other way we can do this? And he's, he's, he starts to get into actually some quite good responses to certain things. And I do think with a lot of the sales authors, they don't want to feed us stat responses to certain things. But actually, do you know what? I won't say no to a book of stat responses to certain objections. Not when they're good ones. No. I agree. It just means if, if Jeb Blunt wrote a book called standard responses to stupid shit clients say I'd, i'll tell you what i'd part with 895 for that i agree completely yeah. absolutely and then it, it sales it's a sales truth it's the sales process stupid jedi mind tricks i did like his point here on jedi mind tricks what, pay, what page are you on this is page 100 if you are looking for a Jedi mind trick that will give you the upper hand in negotiations with buyers look no further than uh, the being excellent at the following one prospecting Two, qualifying. Three, initial meetings. Four, aligning. The, you know, I don't need to go on through the whole list, do I? No, no, I liked it, yeah. And, and I did highlight that. I thought, yeah, there's your Jedi I, I, 
I highlighted the same things, yeah. And we talked a lot about that last week, which is surely if you do a good job with the sale, the negotiation is easier. Negotiations are always harder. It's a little bit like closing a placement, isn't it? When do the candidates act up because you haven't listened to them, understood their needs early on, qualified whether they're serious about finding a job? Yeah, it's because it's, yeah, absolutely. It's because the, the, their role doesn't meet their needs. Or the, yeah, you know, same with the clients. Why does a client disappear and you didn't, you didn't understand something? It's absolutely. any deal. If you did the job properly really early on, it's always a lot easier at the back end. Now, you've gone past a couple of things that I liked, actually. So, I'm paid, so we're in Chapter 12, obviously, which is talking about power position. It's yeah. talking about you being in power position. And on page 96, it says, sellers imagine that the buyers have more options than they actually do. I 100% think that's the case. What always staggers me is I'll speak to a new prospect. They go, oh, I've got loads of CVs. I've got loads of candidates. And then I actually <laughs> look at who they've recruited. You like, think, really? What? Did you really have loads of prospects? Because you've ended up hiring him. Yeah. I, I, and I'm sure that that's the case with our, you know, with our clients. I'm sure that they're out there pitching ERP software. And the client, oh, I've got loads and loads. And they think, I'm speaking to everyone. You have bought that from them. But that's a belief thing, I think, very often. Yes, um, it's a, a mental self-discipline and an emotional self-discipline thing, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Knowing, eh, it's, that, it's that confidence thing born of knowing you've, on, you've only got so many hours in the day, you've only evaluated so many customers, and one of them is me, and my product's good, and I've done a good job with this campaign. I, I, think, I think it's that. I also think there's a point at which, you know, it's going to sound arrogant, or I don't mean it to, but I know a lot more about sales recruitment than all the clients that I speak to, and yes. I know I'm right. And that's an interesting part that's missing in the book. Yes, absolutely. That's what I was going to say. It's your own credence, confidence. Yes. What you're saying is correct. You know, there's some companies out there, notably the big ones, Oracle, SAP, Microsoft, Amazon Web Services, you know, AWS. They obviously recruit some brilliant people, clearly. But some of the people they recruit, I think, you've done what? What? I'll tell you, Pricey, I went to the Bezos called me up and said, Listen, should I recruit him? I'd say, what, on what earth are you is doing wrong with you? I don't think Jeff's that bothered, Mike. Is Jeff going to come on the show? Did you say no. he was coming on the show? No. Uh, so I was at this Gartner Symposium a while ago, right? And I'm sat in this coffee area waiting to meet a client. And uh, there was a fella sat next to me on this table. He was clearly, uh, he worked for one of the big vendors. I won't name which, but I knew which one it was. And he sat talking to these two Johnny Foreigner guys. They're not English. I don't know what country they're from. And he's pitching and he's pitching and he's going and he's going. And I could just sense a lack of authority in the table between him and them. And he just, it made him weak. The whole thing he was being, he, he just consistently, oh, I've lost my light. He became consistently weaker as the conversation progressed he's just constantly chasing isn't he yes please listen please listen please listen i'm at the garner symposium my boss is back at the exhibition stand and i need to come back and tell him that i've closed you yeah uh, and i think there's an element i know you you and i have it where part of it is time served in the game where 20 years in the game actually you've done your ten thousand hours mike i've done mine therefore we have authority in the things we say with our customers. Yep. It's a big part and, then, of it. and then part of it is just actually a knowledge of, listen, I know what I'm talking about here and being able to get that across. And I think he's missing that because that's a very powerful negotiation strategy. Just that little bit of personal authority. No, it's interesting, isn't it? You, you, you know, let's say, you know, you went to your, you went and listened to somebody that you had a great amount of belief in like a doctor or a lawyer, how much are they able to influence your decision hugely because they're a perceived expert in what they do. And I think very often people look down the nose a little bit, sales guys, but you know, I place ERP sales people that have been selling ERP software for 30 years. And obviously they've got a vested interest, but are they knowledgeable in what they do? And, and should that come into the negotiation piece and should the prospect listen to them? Damn right. Yes. 100%. Absolutely. And but that how in often, and of itself is leverage, isn't it? Exactly. But he never mentions it. And how often 
does the 30-year ERP salesperson turn around and say, listen, you know, you can try you can try and screw me down on price if you want, but this is what's going to happen. I don't think yeah. they do it often enough. Here's what's going to happen. I'll go back to my boss. My boss will say, Jesus, I'm going to have to cut a few Mondays out there. You're going, to end, up with, you're going to end up with the beginner, the beginner implementation expert yeah. rather than the time served 30-year number. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway. And I think that he's missing that little, that for me is an, an ultimate element of leverage. How would you bottle that in a book where you would say, know your stuff, be an ex, become an expert? Just read another book, wouldn't you? You ain't going to do it in this one. Page 102, uh, to increase, so this is all about your power, just to recap. To increase your alternatives, obviously he's put here, be fanatical about prospecting and build a strong pipeline full of qualified opportunities. He's obviously 100% right in that. Um, yeah. He is bang right. And, then and, and we've talked about that a bit last week. I, I wrote here the whole concept of month end, quarter end. I think it weakens people's negotiation position. Inevitably. There's not much you can do about it, though, is there? No, I mean, you, you talk about trying to push the sea backwards, aren't you? But it, it does. And you, how often we speak to candidates. Uh, I, if you said to me, how many times a year do you speak to a candidate? Why are you looking for a job? Well, the company's quarterly driven. I just had a situation at the end of last quarter where my boss made me drop best part of most of my commission on a deal just to get the deal over the line before the end of the quarter. In reality, I've had to push the client. It's ravaged my relationship with the client so much that I could never go back and sell there again. Da, 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 yeah, da. I mean, you do get that a lot. I always think that's a lie, actually. You, know, you reckon? So, so, 100%, yeah. When a candidate says that to me, what, what, you know, why was their boss making them take a discount? Well, because they hadn't sold enough stuff, obviously. What you're going to get a lot now, I think, is... The he, the he being the boss or the he being the individual? The he being the individual hasn't sold enough. So the he could be a lady, obviously. But the he being the boss going, listen, he the salesperson, you haven't sold enough this quarter. You need to get something over the line. Drop your pants on that sale and get it over the line. And then he the salesperson comes crying to the recruiter going... Oh, I had to drop my commission. Made me lose well, my I tell you what, if you'd sold enough, you wouldn't. I tell you exactly what's going to happen right now is, uh, as in, we're filming this on the sixth of April. Is there are going to be loads of salespeople looking for jobs because of coronavirus because they haven't hit their target, and I tell you now why they haven't hit their target because they didn't hit their target for activity and pipeline in September, October, November, December. It, what's happening today? The reason you're missing your target today on the 6th of april is because you weren't good enough at the end of last year and the start of this year now actually why are you going to miss your target in july because obviously coronavirus is going to affect your pipeline your ability to get out there and into the field 100 percent, i can buy that but i just think all of these things about end of quarter and all the rest of it is if you've got a full enough pipeline end of quarter doesn't make any difference to you at all no it doesn't. I spoke to a sales guy last week who works in the healthcare space, Mike. He, he made a very interesting point, which was he said uh, he was put under enormous pressure to close a piece of business at the back end of the, of the quarter. And he felt that he'd pushed the customer so hard and the customer was trying to prioritise, in reality, coronavirus business issues. But I felt actually speaking to that salesperson that he was just over-empathizing with the client a little bit. And as awful as that sounds, it's awful. You know, we're all in such a difficult, awful place right now, and we're all fully in love with our, our National Health Service, and we're, and we're all fully empathic towards them. But I actually thought, you're over-empathizing here, fella. Right. Do you know what I mean? There's, there's empathy, and then there's empathy. Yeah, of course I do, yeah. And actually, I thought, you've weakened your negotiation position, Instead of saying to the customer, listen, at some point we all got to do business. And right now you need to sign that contract. And he said, oh, I've damaged my relationship with the, with the customer. Oh, really? And I think the point you'd make is you'd say, well, hold on a minute. Had you got about the deal earlier, had you been working on it last September instead of in March, you wouldn't have had to damage your relationship with the customer, would you? Well, if you'd had more deals in your pipeline. Yes, you'd have just allowed the deal to slip. And yeah, not, put the client, not put the client under pressure to sign it. Your boss wouldn't have given, be given you any grief because you'd hit your target anyway. What's yeah. the big issue? It's the number one failing. You know, I've said it in every single book club, I think. But the number one failing of the salespeople that I deal with is they, ha they just do not have enough in their pipeline. They do not spend enough time Prospecting. focusing on the top of the funnel. They do not do it. 
Yeah, and it hurts I in the end. I guarantee you now they're all running around with the sky falling down, going, oh, I've lost this, I've lost this, I've lost this. Actually, how many of them are going, right, this is going to be pretty tough. How do I keep it off my pipeline? How do I keep it off my funnel sorted? Anyway, chapter 13. So let me get to chapter 13. What page am I on now? 111. 111. Status quo, safety biases. Was there anything interesting in that? Clearly not. Um, here we go. Discovery, the fine art of building your case. And this is where I got a little bit, uh, we talked earlier on in the show about this. Um, it, it, if you uncover enough pain and associate your products to that pain, then you, the negotiation is an awful lot easier. Yeah, I mean, these are good chapters, actually. Yeah, but they're, they're, they're sales chapters, not negotiation chapters. Oh, absolutely, they? yeah. They're, they're absolutely sales chapters, 100%. Yeah, you know, right now, you cannot buy a Watt bike, a Concept 2 rower or bike, or pretty much any turbo trainer at all. Why? Because people are in pain. People are in pain. They're stuck in their houses. They can't get to the gym. So the whole country's gone out and bought a turbo trainer or a Watt bike. Plus, every football club and every rugby club is 20 Watt bikes short because they've tried to give one to every player on earth. Right. But why? Because there's pain. Pain creates leverage. So I was looking on eBay last night. I was thinking, oh, this spin bike I've got, it's a bit rickety. Wish I bought it, really. Maybe I'll rent a Watt bike or I'll get a used Watt bike. Well, yeah, brilliant. People are charging four grand for them on eBay. Are they really? Yeah. <laughs> People are proper taking the piss. But they've got leverage. It's just supply and demand, though, that, isn't it? Yeah, but they've, got, but they've got leverage over the basic economics, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, of course they have, yeah. So I get his point. He says, it's not sexy, but it's the key to getting ink. Discovery can be slow, time-consuming, and emotionally challenging. And we said earlier on, didn't we, if you really, really understand what your customer's about and you did it early on up front and you got inside the customer's head, there's going to be far fewer negotiation points in the conversation. There are. You're just going to be ahead of it all. I'll tell you what I do like about this chapter, though. They're on chapter whatever number it is, chapter 13. Is it actually put down a framework here? Yes, he has. And There's I, a framework that you can follow. My, my issue is I, I'm not going to go back in time and change the framework I would follow in a, in a complex sale if I had to deal with one, given that I've invested a lot of time and energy in a framework that works for me. But this is a framework. Yeah, it's a framework on negotiation. Now, it's a framework on selling as part of the standard of negotiation. But I tell you what, it's much more relevant to the salesperson than Chris Vossel's book. Yes. There's nothing like this in Chris Voss's book. I think a lot of people got really excited about Chris Voss's book because it's like, hey, yeah, man, I worked for the FBI. Well, he's a cool guy, isn't he? It's a cool Do, do you book. know what's interesting? I've got a client at the minute who's met him. They had him as a speaker. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, what's he like? And this chief exec said, yeah, just as cool as you think, actually. He's a really right. good guy. He said he was in the hotel the night before. I obviously went and had a few beers with him. Really fascinating, cool guy. Well, you know. It would be there, would fair you? Have, play. Would fair you have play to Chris Voss. Mind you, I'd have a beer with Jeb Blount, I reckon. He seems all right. I reckon Jeb Blount would be more value over a few beers. Don't know. Let's, we'll <laughs> ask, when we interview him this afternoon, we'll let's out, ask we? him. We'll say, listen, we reckon you'd be better value over a few beers than Chris Voss. Okay, well, we'll start with that. <laughs> Chapter 14 is about qualifying. And again, to follow your point, you know, you're absolutely right. This is about selling as much as it's about negotiating. Yeah, it is. And I think if you said to Jeb, when he's going to come on the show this afternoon, and you said, what's the key to, to effective negotiating? He'd say, every other stage in the process, and then a couple of bits on top. Yes, absolutely and what, agree. what he's getting at here is he's, he's reminding us, isn't he? Um, he, point, he points out here, nothing you learn in this book matters a hill of beans if you are not dealing with a qualified prospect. And yeah, he's I mean, so he right, very good, he? Very, very good point, your page. 126, 127, he talks about fit qualifiers. Sometimes you don't fit your prospects, their expectations, needs, requirements, demands, buying processes, and so Correct. on. Correct. Sometimes they don't fit you. And he doesn't say sort of qualify out, but he, he implies it, and I agree with him. Well, he talks Which, about ideal qualified prospect, doesn't he? And, yeah, there's a bad fit for you. Well, l l let's get it right. If I said to you, what's the single most useful exercise we've done as a, a, an academic intellectual level with our business in the last five to 10 years, I think you'd say it was the work we did on the very precise Profiling, definition yeah. of, of, our, of, of our ideal client prospect. Just made me think of something to write down that. I absolutely agree with you. It, it really was. Yeah, it made such a difference. And so few people actually do it. Who is your ideal client? 
and they go off and they try and win this one and that one and you look at it and you think well has it been a shit client for you no wonder you lost it's yeah yeah exactly customer. you know let's get it right microsoft haven't phoned me this morning and asked me to be their recruiter but if they did i'd have to look <laughs> at it and think just not sure you're quite right for me as actually. crazy as that sounds they're just not right for me as crazy as it sounds if some in-house senior member of the in-house recruitment team at microsoft rang today you'd think okay yeah not for me we need to really think about whether that's an ideal client for us. Or not. I wouldn't really think about it. I'd go, yeah, no, not for me. Let's get it right. You know, you went to see a guy about two months ago who heads up an internal group team for a big Gartner Magic Quadrant business. You know, where is that right now? It's nowhere. Yeah. You know, terms I, are with procurement. Well, why? Terms are with procurement. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and why Eight is weeks that? Weeks later, terms are with, still with procurement. Now, interestingly, we work for their arch rival. But actually, we work for their arch rival with the hiring manager, just to a strange oddity. Yes. But we do. They are. They're at loggerheads. Those two companies compete at absolute loggerheads out in the field with each other, don't they? Think about it. Hmm. Um, but they're, so, so we know who our, who our ideal criteria is. And using Jeb's framework, you know, poor fit, high profit, that one you went see is poor fit potentially high profit but it's poor fit potentially high profit well it would have been low profit as well terms would have been terms will have been bobbins i didn't didn't know what your terms were actually i figured they'd be all right because the basic salaries would be pretty no there's there's a ridiculous rebate ridiculous rebate on the contract yeah fair enough anyway it's like about seven years or something (laughs) (laughs) it's ridiculous it's ridiculous that's funny but then he goes on and he says you know use plot your ideal uh qualified prospects and I mean, I agree with you. It's not very negotiation-y, as in focusing on negotiation. But it is, it is good stuff to have in there. Yeah, it is. And if in reality, all those, it's all the good. What the point Jeb's making here is: good negotiation starts on the day you sit down at your desk and think, right, I'm going to make fifty approaches to fifty customers. Right, look at this one. Are you worth contacting? Do you fit my ideal client criteria? Yes, you do. Right. There's, there's, there's the first part of your negotiation done. Exactly. Next part of your negotiation, I'm going to get through to the guy. Next part of my negotiation, I'm going to qualify him properly before I get involved with him. Next part of my negotiation, I'm going to actually do really high quality discovery so that I'm not sat there with something I didn't really understand when I get to the negotiation table. And that's what his point is, is do it all properly up front. And actually your negotiation should theoretically be a piece of piss. I think often the hardest negotiations are where there's loads of information missing. Yes. And well, you're stuff not, you're you don't not negotiating, know. are you? You're just guessing. Yeah, you just hope. Well, actually, what you're trying to do is hope. Yeah. Hope's become your strategy, hasn't it? Absolutely. So that was part three. And then part four. Are we doing part four as well? Yeah. All oh, right. Okay. I, did, I thought we were finishing at part three, Jonathan. Sorry I- to disappoint you, Michael. Now, this is a good one for me because part four is about emotional discipline. Okay. And, and, I, and I do, it's so, so chapter 15, and I, and I do really agree with this. And he talks about, he, on page, what are we on, page 134, it goes, the brutal truth is that in every negotiation, the person who exerts the greatest emotional control has the highest probability of achieving their desired outcomes. To become a master negotiator, you must first learn to master and ride above right above the destructive emotions that are holding you back. These seven destructive emotions are fear, yep. desperation, insecurity, need for significance, brackets, should say ego, attachment, eagerness, and worry. I mean, they're pretty obvious ones, but I've got to tell you, he's absolutely right. He's saying that these seven things are what kill you. That's when the I think, personal stuff, isn't it? That's the bit where work becomes personal. I thought my possibly i don't I, th- I think some people will worry and have desperation in deals some people will worry and have desperation as people now, it's very rare some people are worriers splits the two yeah some people are worries yeah i'm a worrier i some worry about shit some people are some people are paranoid yeah some people you know he hasn't put that in there but so i thought that was he a does very... actually mention paranoia as a healthy as a healthy emotion later on. yeah uh, later on that is it fair yeah. enough so then chapter 16 is about developing emotional self-control. And I've got to say, I think that these parts, you know, chapters 15 and 16 are really good. Really? Yeah, I do. I think I, they're I, really I important. Am I on chapter... I'm on 16 here, developing emotional self-control. I think... Tell you my thoughts with it are... 
he talks about self-awareness, but he doesn't really tell people how to be self-aware. Yeah, that's a book though, isn't it? Yes, it's a book in its own right. And I did write, so how do you develop self-awareness and how do you develop that ability to be aware of your own thought process? That's a big you know, point. Say self-awareness opens the door to self-control. I mean, it's absolutely 100%. Oh, of course I, it does. I, I would imagine if you were looking at a salesperson who was closing out on a deal and they were fat, sat face to face and you could do that thing where you stopped and froze the room and went to the candidate, uh, the salesperson and went, right, you picking up and chewing your pen, what does that say to them on the other side of the table? Yeah. Put your pen down. What are you thinking right now? Well, what, what are you thinking? And actually, what are you transmitting emotionally? I used to have a, 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 a manager who used to say it to me all the time. What are you doing right now? What are you thinking right now? What was yeah, the I think it's a very what was, healthy thing to say. To say. Yeah, it felt like bullying at the time, but it didn't do me any harm. What What was the thought that went through your head when you said that? Why did you say that? What were you thinking? Yeah. Not in an, And it wasn't in an insulting way. It was just... It was trying to make you self-aware. Yeah. What was the thought that went through your head before you said that to that guy? Why did you ask that question? What were you hoping to gain from that question? And that little moment of self-awareness, that's a... It's very, very powerful. My frustration with the chapter, I put, I'm not really feeling the love for it because it doesn't... I think if you're not a particularly self-aware person, you're going to come out of the chapter no more self-aware. No, but it should be a trigger for you to, put, to go and pick up a book on self-awareness. And where would you suggest a listener starts with that? I think that Chimp Paradox book sounds pretty good. There's loads of books, isn't there? I, you know, I, I really think, and it's going to go back, I, I think Tony Robbins, Awaken the Giant Within, I mean, it's Muck NLP. But there's a lot of that kind of thing about anchors and that kind of thing in there, really. I think that's a good foundation. That, you know. And I think doing just studying some basic mindfulness as well. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm doing a book on mindfulness at the minute as well, actually. I've done it with the kids as it goes. How is your meditation practice coming on? Uh, as well as your yoga? Well, obviously, yoga's different, isn't it? Because you've got to be able to bend to do yoga. Yoga but, is a mindfulness and meditation practice in itself. Yeah, yeah, I know. You're going to go about hot yoga and all that kind of hippie shit. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so getting back to it, how do you become self-aware? You go on Amazon, you put in self-awareness books, you choose the one with the best ranking. Well, there's a brilliant treatise. And I'll but that's back our it point up. though, Jonathan. That, yeah. You know, a, a, lot of the, a lot of the people that I deal with and that are out there, they just present problems all the time. Oh, but I get really anxious in front of a deal. Well, so well, then- what, are you do- what are you doing to cure that? Well, we, we talked about that last week, didn't we? That's that moment. I, 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 I put a post on this about this on LinkedIn. I, I call it um, your failure acceptance threshold. Where's your failure acceptance threshold? Oh, I keep getting anxious before a deal and then my negotiations go wrong. Well, where's your well, acceptance threshold? What are you going to do about it? At what point are you going to hit rock bottom? What's the point at which actually losing is no longer an option? What, when you're homeless, sitting sit, sit next to some homeless, smoking spice on the street? Where's exactly. your failure acceptance threshold? So, okay, I want to become self-aware. Well, we'll sort it out. If you want well, to do it, you'll find a way. You know, maybe asking Mike and Johnny is probably the wrong thing to do. Just go and find a way. Yeah, 100%. Um, and, and then, then, then he, goes, he talks about relaxed, assertive, confident. And he's sort yeah. of what he's almost saying is, listen, fake it till you make it. He is, yes, I agree with that. But, he, but he's talking about what I was alluding to a minute ago, which is we're sat there in the sales room with the salesperson and she's chewing a pen. He's sort yes. of saying, don't chew your pen, chill out. Yes, absolutely. The only, the only problem with relaxed, assertive confidence is I think sometimes it comes across as cheesy arrogance. So you do actually have to watch yourself very carefully, I think. And he says that, to be fair. He makes that point, which is mm. there's a di- big difference between being relaxed, assertive and confident and arrogant. Yes. And actually, often, I think, when people don't really truly have congruent, relaxed, assertive confidence, it very quickly comes over as arrogance. Yes, it is. Well, I mean, he's, he uses his example of 145, page 145 of, of how different people all over the world negotiate in different ways. So you've been to Marrakesh, haven't you? You know, you can't take yeah. the first price in Marrakesh. It's, it's sort of Unless rude. you're my wife's brother who bought this bag and he's got loads of money. <laughs> and he bought this bag. And the geese goes, it's 250 quid. And he goes, wow, for something as beautiful as that, I'll tell you what, you can have it. 
<laughs> and he gave it to the geezer. We we're all like, what have you just done? You, you, you but I think, you know, I've never been to Marrakesh, but I get the impression in certain cultures, actually, they, it, it's just sort of what you, ex, what, what, what you expect and accept. Whereas, you know, Western society, he said, negotiation is uncomfortable for many people in Western society. Yeah. What, what is interesting is they've done some work for an Indian offshore company. And we're talking about T's and C's. God, he was giving me a hard time. And I said, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I said something like, you're giving me a really hard time now. I went, oh yeah, it's not personal. It's just how we do it. And I was like, right, okay, fair enough. Bet, well, th there's a, great, there's a great story when many uh, years ago I was working for Emis and uh, I go to an appointment with my wife, Gillian, in London to sell to this law firm and we're negotiating the contract and we've been there for about four hours over every point in the contract. And to be fair to the missus, I was working with my wife at the time. To be fair to my wife, she, she lost the will to live during the meeting. She went, this is just getting ridiculous now, guys. It's like you're nitpicking on every deal. And the missus turns around to the customer and she says, why are you doing that? And he says, well, you've got to understand we're both Indians. This is how we do it. We negotiate. And Gillian turns around to the customer and she goes, hmm, I take your two Indians and I trump them with my Jew. Now let's get on with this and close this deal. And everyone yeah. fell about laughing. And she went, so can we now just put this to bed? Johnny, tell them what we need. And I just sort of went, right, we need that, 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 and that for it, for it to work for us. And he went, well, I need that, 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 and that. And then within 30 minutes, we printed the contracts, signed them, and gone to the pub. And your point there is about the cultural difference. Well, it was, it's a couple of things. One is... It's a cultural was, reference, by and large. Yeah, it was, a, it was a funny moment, but it was that confidence to just make complete light of it, tell them to stop being so ridiculous, to just get on with it. And actually, when it all stopped being a big negotiation, it happened very quickly. Yeah. It, people it, get wrapped up in the negotiation, don't they? Everyone was wrapped up in the negotiation. We were, I, was, I remember sitting there thinking, I'm fucking... I'm tired. Mm. just exhausted sat at the table and actually all it needed was a funny joke and a bit of a confrontation and a little bit of lightness and the whole thing stopped being a negotiation and it was just look this is what we need right well this is what we need right let's do it and literally the contract was coming off the printer half an hour later happy days so Chapter 18 emotional con contagion People can i go back to one page 150 change your physiology oh that's what we're on he talks about power posing well, can we? Yeah, okay. Let's cover that and then go back a minute. Go on. You do that sometimes yeah. when you stand on your chair in the morning. Monday mornings, when you're on your phone, you always stand on your chair. That's just because I'm. I don't know why I do that. Really, power posing. Is that what it is? Yeah, subconsciously uh, changing your physiology so you feel powerful. No, it never occurred to me. Whereas I, I used to work. We used to have a lad that worked for us, the ginger one. He used to do this all the time. The yeah, hooding, yeah. the hooding pose. That's power pose. Is it? There you go. Yeah. And then, it went, then what, we're on to chapter 19. Well, I was going to say just before that, he's got a, uh, a table, page 148149, non-verbal non communication. Good, that. Really good. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot more to it than just that table. But I'll tell you what, as a good, quick summary, fair play. And for those people listening, you know, he, he lists things that demonstrate lack of confidence, insecurity, and fear, and how that would translate if you were to demonstrate a relaxed, confident demeanor. Yeah, very simple. Very good. Like it. For further reading on that, try What Everybody Is Saying by Joe Navarro. I think I've got that, actually. Good book, that. He's written a couple of other books since as well. He's sort of more like the Chris Voss of body language. Is he? Yeah. Fair enough. 19, preparation and practice. Yep. What do you make I of mean, this uh, one? Well, the title gives it away, doesn't it? He alluded to this about 20 pages ago or something. He said, if you want to get better at negotiating, just getting more negotiations. Yes. And I also and rate the fact that he says here, practice running through different scenarios is one of the keys to keeping your emotions in check. He's so right. How often have we had new starters where we've done, tried to get them to do role play upon role play upon role play, and they've rejected it. But why are we trying to get them to do role play upon role play upon role play? Because when the moment comes that they're actually involved with a customer, they know their answers, they know where their brain is going to be, so they don't panic. Absolutely agree, yeah. You know, it, actually, it's, the, 
It's What's the same reason that the combinations for that exact same reason. Um, Would you just repeat what you said there, please, Mike? Yeah, the bandwidth is bad. I said it's the, it's the same reason that boxers work out punch combinations in spa, so that when they're in the ring, yeah, they just they're drilled. You know, you know what? What? Why do the soldiers? Why does anybody do it? Yeah, absolutely. Because we know what we're doing. You know, why do the golfers go down the practice range? Blah de blah de blah. Yeah, and then he talks about knowing your emotional triggers, which is right. Knowing what sets you off. Yeah, absolutely. There's certain things customers do with me that set me off. Like what? I know. There are, I know, I bet. If I sat down and really gave it half an hour of just solemn contemplation. Solemn contemplation. <laughs> I bet, that I, bet I, that I would come up with a list of things of, oh, yeah, well, if a customer does that, I always lose my shit. Yeah, that's probably. Good. I'll tell you one that's a, a real trigger for me, Pricey, is customers that make me wait. I'll repeat that just in case because we lost a little bit. Of the no, I did hear you. I was thinking how I would respond to it. Customers that make me wait. You see, because what's it very interesting off, is, t t talking about this is, I can't think what annoys me about. I, I can't think what my emotional triggers are, but I obviously must have some. I know that triggers me. Hmm. And I, I, I get, gr I have to sort of almost, man I know at a customer site, if a customer's late, I have to manage myself, talk a little bit if they're late to not be like a complete dick by the time the poor guy's got downstairs because actually his boss was on the phone. Yeah, fair yeah. enough. And then he so, talks about positive visualisation and self-talk. Yeah, well, he refers here to why the athletes do it. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, it, I, I sort of ended up just sort of drifting through this a little bit because I've just come across it in so many other places. It didn't necessarily feel like it was negotiation per se, specific. Sorry, Sorry Mike, actually... we just lost a little bit of bandwidth then. Yeah, we are losing a bit of bandwidth, actually. That's because it's uh, 10 past nine and it's the Easter holidays and all the kids have just got up and they're all on Xbox now. Correct. Literally, that's what's happened. Yeah, absolutely, 100%, yeah. Anyway, so chapter 20, the ledge technique. What do you make of this? Because we were arguing about this earlier. Yeah, we were, weren't we? It, he says it's difficult to control your attention. It's hard to think. Studies have proven that even your IQ drops when you're in vulnerable situations. Big problem when you need 100% of your intellectual acuity to win for your team. And what he talks about is the curse of fight or flight. Or it, the, it's the monkey mind, as uh, some uh, meditation teachers would refer to it as. And what he's talking about is the limbic system overtaking your rational ability to think um, at times of pressure and when you're in reality confronted. And what he's saying is in any negotiation, it is a confrontation or a threat. Either your brain thinks it's either a physical threat or a social threat to your social standing. In either way, that will fire off adrenaline and that adrenaline makes you actually a little bit more stupid because your body diverts focus to your heart and your legs so that actually back in the days when we all lived in the jungle we could run uh, whereas actually we don't run anymore we have to think um, but our bodies and our our brains are still designed like animals for us to go straight into that fight or flight moment of of panic and then he talks about this technique, really, called the ledge technique. It sounds a little bit to me like listen, pause, and clarify, really. That's what I wrote. That's exactly what I wrote. <laughs> right, okay. And it just seems to me like what he's basically saying is when you get hit by a negotiation point or a point in a negotiation that's got you knocked off your feet. Ask a question. Ask, ask a question. Buy yourself some time. Yeah. Which is great. And it's, it's, it's what it's you should not, do. It's not a bad thing to do. No, it's not a bad thing to do with an objection, a negotiation point, any of those, is you're buying yourself a little bit of time, aren't you? Exactly, yeah. Exactly. And that's, that's the, the ledge technique is, ask a question. Yeah, ask a question, buy yourself some time. Exactly. Uh, you know, and he makes some good points. Avoid negotiating when you're tired, hungry, or emotionally drained. He's right. It's a bit like going to the supermarket when you're hungry, isn't it? He is right. But, I mean, how many people, you know, on the 6th of April are currently emotionally drained that are trying to negotiate contracts? All of us. So, you know, it's a nice utopia, isn't it? But actually, you know, sometimes you've got to do it. But, but, uh, but you know, a good example is the dogs. I took the dog out this morning at half past five, walked for ages, blah, blah, blah. 
when the way we come back home, we come through the parks. There's a, there's a rabbit, and he's ch- he spent an hour chasing rabbits. The dog. All right. So, should he? No, I'm not going to chase hired. No, I'm going to chase it because I'm a rabbit. <laughs> and the same is true in negotiation, isn't it? No, I'm not going to negotiate because I've been negotiating all week. No, I'm going to negotiate it because I want to get it closed now. So you know, his utopia of not of oh, let's do it when we're emotionally stable. Yeah, maybe, maybe not really. I once worked on a contract. I remember it was another one that was really lengthy as a negotiation. It went on and on and on. And my manager at the time, who was a very bright guy, said, uh, "You do realise what's going on here." And I was negotiating directly with a lawyer. And every time I sent over a change in a word document, he would send over his amends suggested in an email. So then I'd have to then go into the contract, open up the contract. I mean, this is a three, 400 page contract and then find the clauses in the contract, then amend it, then send it back. And Chris's point was, he said, this is an old lawyer's trick, Johnny. He is trying to make you lose the will to live so that you just start saying yes. He said, he's just trying to wear you out. He's trying to emotionally exhaust you. And he'll just keep going and keep going and keep going. And he said, next time he does it, tell him that you refuse to respond to emailed points and that he needs to add red line amends to the contract. He knows how to do that. He's a contract lawyer. Smart. Yeah. But he was, and I never realized that's what he was doing. I just thought, this guy's an idiot. But actually, he was trying to emotionally drain me so that I would just sooner or later, and he said, can you not notice they're all little points? He hasn't talked about the elephants in the room yet. And he's just trying to wear you out so that you'll just acquiesce when it comes to the big bits. He sounds cool. Yeah, he was obviously, he was a very, very bright guy. He had a very nice Porsche, actually. He was a nice, but he was a nice fella as well until that point. (laughs) (laughs) I really enjoyed working with him until we started doing that. Chapter 21, I mean, Jeb's talking about here, you know, willpower and emotional discipline are fine out. What I was just talking about with the dog. Yes. And actually doing stuff when you're tired. Avoid negotiating when you're tired, hungry, emotionally drained. Um, but, but sometimes we don't have a choice. 100% you don't have a choice. Like I just said, how many people are emotionally drained today? How many people have been sweating about a contract all weekend? Supposed to close at the end of last year, which was obviously 31st of March. Only seven days ago, it didn't close. The bosses kept their books open for them. The bosses already emailed them this morning, already called them. Are they emotionally yeah. drained right now? Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's before we yeah. mentioned the fact that they've been in lockdown with their families all weekend. They've not yeah. been and to the football. They've not been to their pub with their mates. Absolutely. All of that. Yeah. All of that. They've argued with their family all weekend. The whole country's emotionally drained right now. Exactly. Oh, but I'm, I'm not going to negotiate today. I'm a bit emotionally drained. Yeah, nice one, Jeb. <laughs> Thanks for that. Really helpful. But Wrote he did it. write that before we all ended up locked in our houses. Yes. Chapter 22. I'm glad he's, you know, the pipe is life, the real secret to emotional discipline. Yeah. That Good it, it, work, it hit, Jeb. Yeah. Fanatical prospectors get up in the morning and bang the phone. During their day, they knock on doors. Between meetings, they prospect with email and texts. At night, they connect with and engage prospects on social media. Before they quit for the day, they even make more calls. When they are tired, hungry and fed up with rejection, they make one more call. He's right. You know, you and I have talked about it. If I remove my clever little background here, what's on my little background? None. Oh, look, there's my whiteboard. You know, what's, what's that whiteboard for, Mike? Because I know it's going to be hard times. What am I going to do every morning for the rest of this year? I'm going to spend every morning prospecting in one way or another. Yeah, yeah. Focusing purely on prospecting activity. Why? Because if I do enough of it, some I reckon it'll probably all, ju- I reckon we'll just about get away with it. I agree. Maybe even thrive. Some people will do well out of it. There's no doubt about that. So... Our next show, we will be covering the last two sections of the book. And this afternoon, actually, as an in-between stage, we will be interviewing Jeb Blunt for the show. Happy days. So what do you make of it so far, this book? What do I make of it? Sometimes I judge the books on two different measures. Uh, I judge them on how much conversation it's got out of us. And I judge them on uh, how much I've personally learned and grown um as a book actually if i compare it to a lot of other books you know i've covered books on this show 
where I've sat before the show and I've looked at you on the afternoons where we've recorded all four in one afternoon and thought, what the hell am I going to talk to Mike about about this book this afternoon? Um, and that's not the case of this book. There's a lot to talk about and there's a lot of different points that are made. In terms of what have I personally gleaned, there's a couple of bits. I think some of the bits about um, getting back on my phone, yeah. I mean, and my brain was already there anyway. Listen, pause, clarify. Yeah, great. Fight and flight, yeah, nice reminder. Know your emotional triggers, nice reminder. I think what it's got me thinking about is, is my whole game intact? And it, what it might have encouraged me to do is to do a full review of every facet of my selling game. I, th I think any book would have done that, though, wouldn't it? Yeah, particularly given the current market circumstances and so on. I think so any on. book would. So I'm not blown away by it, but I'll tell you what, again, as I often say with these books, if I wanted to think about negotiating, and if I was a salesperson that thought, you know what, maybe I'm not happy with how that negotiation went, if you bought this, started reading it and focused on it, you'd probably get quite a bit out of it. What it's lacking is that uh, is some nitty gritty on the core component parts of being in a negotiation situation with a customer. It's lacking technical. Yeah, steps, it's not a technical manual on negotiation, is it? No, no. Um, what it's actually is is a clarion call that says to become a better negotiator, become a better salesman. Yeah, it's pretty much the, the crux of the book. And at that, we'll bid you goodbye, and we will see you, or listen to you, or hear you, or you can hear us next week. Goodbye. Bye.